Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I want us to look about the testimony of an empty tomb. Question, have you ever seen an old empty house in a deserted neighborhood, or perhaps the door stood ajar, kind of sagging on the hinges, so you kind of, kind of get a little picture here, right? Maybe loosened by the ravages of weather and time. And have you noticed the vacant stairs of glassless windows? If you paused to listen, you could almost hear the loud and boisterous cries of generations of happy children that once echoed from its walls and filled its now silent emptiness. If you pause and consider long enough, your mind's eye might conjure up visions of um, familiar and nostalgic scenes of yesteryear. Maybe of family circles unbroken, of those that once gathered for joyous, festive family events or feasts, or of the tragic and traumatic events that changed things forever for those who once sheltered there, or of ordinary and natural happenings that led to its now sad and silent state. If its walls could speak, what tales might be told of the terrible tragedies or thrilling triumphs that were played out there? What testimony could they give to the human conditions of sorrow and sadness and love and joy and happiness? In a land far away, there is a tomb with silent walls as well. If that tomb could speak to us, what would it say? What would it say? Would it tell us of the terrible, tragic, and thrillingly triumphant events that transpired there so many thousands years ago? What would its testimony be? What is the testimony of the empty tomb? The empty tomb testifies of that terrible tragedy transformed into a tremendous triumph. This is the testimony trumpeted by that grand old hymn of the faith. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus my Lord, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with us saints to reign. He arose, he arose, alleluia, Christ arose. There can be no doubt that those who were his closest followers were those most deeply and adversely affected by the tragic and obviously 
the fear that it brought about, the perplexity of it that overwhelmed them. Even before the events truly began to come to pass, Jesus tried to prepare them for the shock and horror they would face on his crucifixion day. He reassured them that the power of God would turn the apparent tragedy into a glorious triumph. He said, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But it seems as the fullness of time drew near, it became increasingly clear that they did not really understand his words. As their doubt and their fear increased, he continued to lovingly ready them for the time of testing and tragedy. On the evening preceding his crucifixion, it became increasingly apparent that in the eyes of the world, and even in the eyes of his followers, a great human tragedy was unfolding. Mark chapter 14, verses 50 and 51, and they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him. Luke 23, and all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smite their breasts and return, and all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. It is clear that those of the watching and waiting world felt they were witnessing an unsurpassed tragedy. His disciples in particular were clearly crushed and confused. How could this happen to their master? How could this even taken place? Had they believed in vain? Had such terrible tragedy evidently and ultimately triumphed over goodness and godliness? Then comes the triumphant cry of the angel. He is not here. He is risen. Amen. The empty tomb testifies of this truth of the gospel. It is the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it fact or fiction? Is the central tenet of the Christian faith an authentic and validated belief? Or is it just a fancy story that some men told many years ago. Was it a hoax? Many would tell you that this did not take place. But I know for a fact that it did. Because the Bible tells me so. Paul sums up the result of such a hoax in these words. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ not be risen, then is our preaching in vain? And your faith also 
in vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ not be raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of men most miserable. The rest of this resurrection chapter is a triumphant affirmation of the resurrection. When the extent of the precautions taken by both the friends and enemies of Jesus to ensure his body could not be stolen are considered. The resurrection is the most logical explanation for the empty tomb. To advocate that a deceitful plot could have been successfully planned and executed is unrealistic. The manipulation, the timing, the intricate detail involved would certainly have a logistical nightmare and the direction and control of the dozens of people necessary involved in a continuing cover-up defies what is commonly known about human nature. So do we believe that Christ died on the cross? Do we believe that he was resurrected? Absolutely. Without a shadow of the doubt. The appearances of Jesus Christ in a resurrection body provides irrefutable evidence of the validity of his bodily resurrection. In the 40 days that followed his resurrection, his appearances to his disciples followed the following approximate chronological order. And I know I'm giving a history lesson, so just bear with me. I know we've had breakfast. I know it's been early this morning. I'll yell at you if you start falling asleep, okay? But here it is. Here's the approximate chronological order. Certain women returning from the sepulchre, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, Peter before the evening of the resurrection day, Cleopas and his companion on Sunday afternoon, ten disciples at their evening meal, all eleven disciples a week later, a number of disciples while fishing on Galilee, the apostles and over 500 others on a mountain, James, and last of all, the apostles before his ascension. If the resurrection did not occur, it is reasonable that the four Gospels, the book of Acts and the first Corinthian letter, all giving these appearances in historical and indisputable fact, would be written and published in the lifetime of many of the witnesses mentioned without a record of dissenting voice being raised? How is that possible? Given our human nature and current societal norms, you would have fact checkers on them like you wouldn't believe, amen? They would have. 
The beginning and very existence of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ could only be reasonably explained by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church rests on the resurrection of its founder. Without this fact, the church would soon have died a natural death. And I'm looking out there and I see that the church is alive. It is alive and well. The miracle of the resurrection and the existence of Christianity are so closely connected that they must stand or fall together. If Christ was raised from the dead, then all of his miracles are sure. And our faith is not in vain. It is only his resurrection that made his death available for our atonement, justification, and salvation. Without the resurrection, his death would be the grave of our sins. A gospel of a dead Savior would be a contradiction and a wretched delusion. This is the reasoning of Paul and its force is irresistible. The empty tomb tells of God's response to man's greatest need. His need to know the answers to the obvious questions of human existence. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And above all, where am I going? Man's quest for answers to these age-old questions of immortality permeates all history and transcends all cultures. The pharaohs were buried in their elaborate pyramids in preparation for the possibility of an afterlife. So were the nobility and the elite of many other well-known cultures. The search for immortality prompted the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon to search the new world for a reputed fountain of youth. Of course, he did not find it. But he did come to the end of his mortal life at the point of an Indian's arrow. Charlatans and con artists throughout the centuries have taken advantage of man's ceaseless search for a true and satisfactory answer to the riddle of immortality. Ancient alchemists with their fraudulent formulas and elixir of life give testimony to the absurdity of some aspects of this quest. Even our day, we hear tantalizing tales of new genetic research and medical advances that tempt many to think man will be able to solve the riddle and achieve immortality on earth. But those who are rational realists understand that such sad seeking can at best only delay man's sure appointment with his maker. None of this ceaseless seeking alters or repeals the fact of the matter. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin 
unto salvation, Hebrews chapter 9. Those who laugh at the gullibility of those who were fooled and fleeced by the con artists of old should pause and think of those who spend millions to have their bodies placed in suspended animation in the hope that advances in science may enable them to be thawed and brought back to life one day in the far distant future. No thanks. I'm happy to get rid of this body. (laughs) In our enlightened age, such vain seeking goes on in many areas of human endeavors. Billions of dollars are being spent seeking life in outer space. Fun to watch, fun to think about, but not very realistic. Planetary probes, space platforms, and vast arrays of radio telescopes are all part of a quest to determine if man is alone in the universe with the hope that some advanced civilization may have found answer to man's perpetual quest to show up and save him from mortality. But for centuries, the empty tomb has been shouting the triumphant answer to man's mortal dilemma. We are not alone in this universe. The eternal creator loved us with an eternal love before the foundations of our existence were even laid out. He has already come from the far reaches of space to dwell among us in the flesh as man. He lived among us and experienced all of our terrible trials, traumas, and temptations. Yet he was without sin or offense. He then was able to become our perfect sin sacrifice and pay the eternal wages of our sin and offer us the gift of his perfect righteousness. He rose again the third day and answered forever all man's questions about the possibility of immortality. The empty tomb speaks of the ultimate triumph of good over evil. In our day of violence and terrorism, one might be forgiven for asking as David asked long ago, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long should the wicked triumph? Or for longing as the psalmist for an end to it all. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. With each passing day, we see an increase in the threats to our way of life in our own very existence. Christianity is being attacked every single minute of every single day. Why? Too many of us stay silent. Too many of us don't know the truth. Too many of us are so worried about what the world thinks when God has already laid out the answer for us. It's already been given. Many felt that when the Soviet system appropriately named the evil empire by the American president, Ronald Reagan, disintegrated and the Berlin Wall came down. 
that the world could perhaps catch its breath for a moment. Disarmament treaties were signed and the slow but systematic destruction of vast arsenals of chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction was begun. Pledges were made on both sides to destroy very significant percentages of the overwhelming stock of nuclear weapons. The U.S. pledged and began to pay billions of dollars to assist the bankrupt former Soviet Republic to destroy their weapon stockpiles and decommission a good number of their resting fleets of deadly and dangerous submarines. Why do I tell you this? Why do I give you the history lesson? This reason. We could all breathe a sigh of relief because the Cold, War, the Cold War doctrine or mutually assured destruction, which was called MAD then, was no longer the military strategy of the two great superpowers. Now, then the terrible threat of Islamic terrorism reared its ugly head. These fanatical religious extremists declared war upon civilization as we know it. They vowed to destroy that civilization and from the ashes raise up a pan-Islamic nation to conquer and dominate the whole world and place it under Sharia law. Why is this in a sermon? Why do we speak of this? Because we struggle to find ourselves in perhaps the most frightening and dangerous world war of all. When we add to this worldwide reality the domestic threat that we are faced with in our own culture, the future definitely looks bleak. All the biblical standards and moral values that have made our nation great are under deadly attack. We are on the verge of being inundated with a flood tide of evil. We seem to stand on the very brink of cultural self-destruction. And the only record one needs to catalog is the fact that it is the daily diet of filth that pours forth from the media and has deeply penetrated to all of our institutions, especially our education systems and the family units of our nation. We surely again live in a world where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and this is usually wrong in God's eyes. So how does an empty tomb speak to our dilemma, to our world of chaos, anarchy, and evil? You see, the empty tomb shouts truth. It shouts love, goodness, and life will ultimately win out. The empty tomb speaks of the resurrection power of a living Savior. The power of his gospel will ultimately prevail in this world. The empty tomb certifies that he will come again. He will come with a mighty and awesome power to put down the evil one and his worldly systems of evil. He will establish righteousness again throughout his kingdom for a thousand years of perfect peace, love, and harmony. Revelation 20 speaks of it. 
He will ultimately destroy all evil and evildoers and banish them from his presence forever. Forever. The empty tomb assures us that all powerful, resurrected, and living Christ will bring all this to pass in his time. This mighty assurance is affirmed to John the Revelator by our Lord himself. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And he has the keys. He is in charge. He is in power. The empty tomb trumpets the conquest of sin and death. If there's anything sure about life, it's death. If there's anything sure about life, it's the specter that haunts man's existence from his first step upon earth until his last. Is it any wonder Job cried out all those years ago? Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and is cut down. He is also as a shadow and continues not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Not one. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him, that he may rest till he shall accomplish as an earling of his day. For there is hope of a tree. If it be cut down, then it will sprout again. And that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud. And bring forth boughs like a plant, but man dies and wastes away. Yea, man gives up the ghost, and where is he? Where is he? The water fails to come from the sea, and the flood decays and dries up. So man lies down, and he rises not. Till the heavens be no more. There shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. O oh, that thou wildest hold me and hide me in the grave, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Job cried those words so long ago. But I believe it's every cry of every person in this building today. We seek a Savior. And we don't seek a Savior that is not living. We seek a Savior that is living. Man's perpetual struggles to defeat and conquer his most terrible enemy have all come to naught. Every and each time 
A new deadly vaccine is found to counter a deadly disease. Another and more deadly disease arises. Each time a new antibiotic is developed to cope with a destructive bacteria, it leads to a mutation into a super bacteria, and that is immune to all remedies. <laughs> we can't escape. We can only endure. But through Christ's sacrifice for us, we can endure. And he offers this promise to all who believe. Death is sure. In giving the genealogy of the patriarchs, the phrase, and he died, is repeated nine times. And it matters not how long man shall live, and it will always be said of him, he died. It is an appointment all must keep. As sure as we live, we die. Whether we like it or not, that sure visitor knocks at the door of the humble or the haughty, the beggar or the billionaire. Whether one lives in the high house on the hill or the shed behind mom's house, it doesn't matter. When he was 89 years of age, Michelangelo wrote this. I have reached the 24th hour of my day, and no project arises in my brain which hath not the figure of death graven upon it. An epitaph of a tombstone reads, Pause, stranger, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so soon you'll be. So prepare yourself to follow me, to which someone had appended on it. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. Isn't that true for us? We follow a Savior who's marked out a clear path for us. And we know what we're following. And if you don't know what that is, enlighten yourself. It is the only relationship that will give over and over and over again. Death may come as a stray bullet or the bumper guard of a speeding car. It may be lying in the luggage compartment of an airplane or forcing the door of its cockpit. It is a close, or it is as close as a malignant sail or one heartbeat, one piece of foreign matter in the bloodstream, or submicroscopic deadly virus or bacteria. We are seeing this today. Death will catch us unaware. Raphael died with his last picture half finished. It was carried in his funeral as a mute testimony of the uncertainty of life. Sir Walter Scott's final words in his journal were, Tomorrow I shall. Tomorrow I shall. Franz Schulbert left his unfinished symphony. Dickens laid down his pen in the middle of his last novel. In light of the sobering fact that death is sure, all of us could well pray the prayer of the psalmist. Teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. Life is just too short and death too sure to trifle with the trivial 
and the trivialness of no eternal significance. Isaiah asked a pertinent question when he said, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labors for that which satisfieth not? Because the empty tomb tells of the ultimate triumph of life over death. The empty tomb gives reality to the eternal principle stated by Paul. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is the ultimate triumph, the resurrection of our Savior. Because he lives, those who truly believe will live forever. It could not be stated any more clearly than by the words of our Savior upon the occasion when he demonstrated the ultimate power over death by the resurrection of his friend Lazarus. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this, he says. And she says to him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. The empty tomb talks of a living Savior. And this living Savior is just as surely present with those who will walk with him as he was on that glorious day. He walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He just as surely desires to open our understanding to all the words of the scriptures as he did for those two that day. He just as surely wishes to commune with us in close fellowship as he did with those two on that occasion. He just as surely wants to be able to truly say as they, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures. If we serve such a living Savior, why are so many Christians weak, weary, faltering, or failing? Could it be that the power of our living Savior primarily abides upon those who tread the pathway of duty and service? R.G. Lee once said, duty and service are the most rewarding and sublime words in the human language. Surely it is also so for the Christian's spiritual vocabulary. Our living Savior has assured us that if we walk with him in this world, we will have tribulation. I always refer back to the thing that I say all the time, especially to the youth. If Christianity is easy, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Our living Savior has assured us that we will go through tribulation. But that which is not achieved through struggle is seldom worth having, is it? In fact, it often brings more harm than help. We see the truth of this 
played out in the lives of many who somehow obtained easy money through such greedy practices as gambling, lotteries. But how often we hear of their ultimate disaster and read of their statements indicating they feel they wish they had never been a part of it, have never gotten their hands on such ill-gotten gains. The empty tomb assures us he lives in the valley and the shadow of death. And man may boastfully bluff his way through the days of health and prosperity, brightness and beauty. But when it comes time to be face to face with the stark reality of the inevitability of that common denominator of all mankind, he needs more than bravado to make sense of all of it. It is commonly said that even the most brash and brutish of men will sometimes cry out for the comfort of their mother's arms in their final hours. Others will, as the thief on the cross, cry out to God for mercy. A few will die cursing God, as did the other thief. But we serve a living Savior, and He is in our world today. The reality of His living presence is completely unrelated to the opinions or opposition of those who do not believe or who have not met him in true repentance in faith. We see his hand of mercy and salvation all around us. We can hear his voice and encouragement and help each day as we read his word and pray and walk with him in the way. Yes, the voice of the empty tomb testifies of a terrible tragedy transformed into a tremendous triumph. It tells us of the truth of the gospel. The empty tomb speaks of the ultimate triumph of good over evil. It trumpets the conquest of sin and death. But more importantly, the empty tomb and why we celebrate today, it talks of a living Savior who came to die for you. He came to die for me and for all mankind. And all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is believe. And if you're here this morning and you do not have that relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Or maybe it's another decision that's weighing on your mind. I want you to bring it forth here today. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this Jesus. Let's talk about the relationship that is waiting for you. Maybe it's to follow in baptism. I don't know what the decision is, but I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning as Dave will come and others as they lead us in our benediction. Do not be afraid to come. If you don't want to talk to me, hey, I understand. Talk to Dave. Talk to Pastor Martin. We have several deacons here who are ready to receive you. But don't leave today without knowing the great power that we have in our Lord Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Dave.
Let's pray as we dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great love. And Lord, you sacrificed your only begotten Son. That's whoever believes in him would experience true salvation. Lord, thank you that you lived, you died, you were buried, but then you rose again. And you fulfilled that promise, Lord. Thank you that you are so, so good to us. And we, as your faithful followers, will continue to serve in any capacity that you would have us. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of this church. Thank you for the blessings of those who visited us today. Lord, be with them as we enjoy the festivities of the day. But let us be reminded of why we celebrate those things. And it is because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said... Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. 
If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.